0: This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film.
1: Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, with the help of special guest author Emily Saveda, we discuss the last third of Michael Crichton's 1990 techno thriller, Jurassic Park. we'd like to welcome Emily Saveda to the show. Emily is the author of This Mortal Coil, a sci-fi dystopian thriller that will definitely appeal to fans of Michael Crichton. Welcome to the show, Emily.
2: Hi, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Yeah, thank you for coming.
2: Yeah, as mentioned, I'm the author of This Mortal Coil, which has a little bit in common with Jurassic Park. It's, it's a story that involves a lot of genetic engineering. Um, it's set in a future that's a little bit beyond the genetic engineering of uh, Jurassic Park, where people actually are hacking their genes on the fly. Um, But basically, Jurassic Park is one of my favorite novels, if not my favorite novel, and was a huge inspiration for This Mortal Coil. So I'm so excited to be talking about it today.
1: That's awesome, I uh, actually, so I've been reading Jurassic Park for the show, obviously, but I picked up This Mortal Coil on Audible and started it out this afternoon while I was waiting to do this recording. Um, And yeah, Jurassic Park came immediately to mind. I think people who like Jurassic Park are going to like this mortal coil. Definitely a lot of genetics and science in there. Really fascinating. That opening chapter, man, just really hooked me. So uh, highly recommend.
2: Ah, thanks. Yeah, I love the mix of science and danger, and that's something that Mm. Crichton's still the all-time master of science and danger. So... Any comparison to Jurassic Park makes me very happy.
1: (laughs) Uh, Do you remember the first time you read this novel?
2: I think I read part of it when I was in college, um, or I may have read the whole thing in college, but then I picked it up again just a few years back, um, maybe about five years ago, when I was on vacation. Um, It was, you know, in vacation and in hotels, sometimes there's a little stack of books and you leave a book and you pick up a book. Anyway, Jurassic Park was there, and I remembered that I liked it, and I love the movie. It's one of my favorite movies as well. Um, so I picked it up, and I was a writer at the time, and so I was seeing it through a writer's eyes. And uh, very quickly, you know, a few pages in, and my mind was just exploding. I was I was seeing it through completely new eyes and just blown away by the, the craft that Crichton has, um, that he exhibits in the book, and the way he builds tension. So... Um, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where I kind of picked it up and went, this will be fun. And a couple of hours later was like, this is changing me as a writer forever. (laughs) (laughs) It was a meteor, a meteor to earth. It was amazing. Yeah.
1: That's so cool. I I, I talked about in previous Mm -hmm. episodes, I think his ability to maintain tension and build tension while bringing all the science in that you would think would kind of be a tension killer, but it doesn't in his hands. So yeah, it's really it's really cool. And and that's something I was picking up in your work right away. Um, so if there are new people checking out our show for the first time, I assume there will be. Um, what we do is we read a book over uh, several episodes usually, um, and then we see the film ad- adaptation for it. We have done two episodes on Jurassic Park. Iterations one through five, uh, sorry, through four, are are what's covered in our first two episodes on this. And then this is going to be our third episode final for the book. It's going to cover iterations five through seven, which we'll summarize and talk about at length. And then uh, next week we'll have the movie episode and that'll be the end of our Jurassic Park coverage. So we hope everybody joins us for that as well.
2: Good timing for the 25th anniversary of the movie was just yesterday, wasn't it? That's
1: right. It's almost like we planned it. Yeah.
2: We just just lucked into it. Awesome!
0: It's crazy because I mean, uh, t- it's the twenty fifth anniversary of my birth, also. So it's like this this, this,
2: this <laughs> oh. just traveled
0: along with me my whole life.
2: <laughs> Dinosaur boy! And I'm wearing
1: my I'm wearing my shirt today too. Oh, nice! Yeah.
2: Oh, that's awesome. For the
1: audio that's medium. Awesome. He's got a Jurassic Park shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, anything else we want to talk about before we get into that summary, James? I guess I, I just wanted
0: to like jump on board what you guys were saying about Crichton and the way that he. <laughs> He so expertly can can craft a story that, that is both smart and so thrilling. And, and like normally in a thriller, it's like a lot of action that you can't put down. And he is able to to put in that scientific flavor to it. I really responded to it the first time I read it and, and I loved reading this this part here at the end. Yeah, and you read it as a kid, right? Right. So, and that was, I mean, it was, it was like a watershed moment for me because it was like, it got me interested in science. It got me interested in reading. It got me interested in, you know, storytelling. And then the movie came, the mo- I mean, I, re- I read the book after the movie, but the movie was massive for me. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to be a filmmaker.
2: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And I've never read this book <laughs> until until now. So amazingly, I missed it.
2: Such a good book.
1: Yeah. All right. I think we're ready to get into the summary. Um, if you guys are. Let's do it. Yeah. So last we left off uh, was the end of four, starting of iteration five. We have Gennaro. He's in a jeep. Uh, they've driven out to look at where the rex attacked the hadrosaurs. Muldoon says that uh, <laughs> mentions that the rex can run them down in the jeep and that they're not safe, which I thought was a nice bit of foreshadowing. And then so they're looking at the hadro car- carcasses when the radio comes on to let them know that they found Nedry's body. They drive to go see his body. When they get there, there's like a pack of compies there who have been feasting on him. Muldoon is able to identify that it was a Dilophosaur that killed Nedri and they retrieved the, lo- the rocket launcher that was in the jeep. Um, but they leave the body behind to get feasted on by the uh, compies here.
2: It's a pretty hectic way to end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we saw Nedri's death at the end of the last the last one, and it was pretty brutal. Um, and then, yeah, this is a pretty brutal way to leave him, too. There's a lot of people getting their comeuppance in this, in this book, you know and that applies to him for sure.
2: I really feel like it's telling that iteration 5 opens with finding a body. I feel like that's foreshadowing that there are there are more bodies to come, especially <laughs> with the group that finds Nedry, right? Yeah. I feel like Crichton is uh opening this section with death to let you know you're you're coming into the third act of the book. You're you're approaching the finale. That was the feeling I got from that scene.
3: Yeah.
0: The brutal nature of the fact that they were like, we're just going to leave him behind. Also, I think he was trying to say, like, depending on how bad your deeds were throughout the story to this point, are kind of going to be foreshadowing of how you may end up in this story.
2: Yeah, I got that feeling as well. Yeah, it's it's well set up that it's a book about dinosaurs. People have to get eaten. (laughs) People have to die. But you have to get to the point where you're you're more or less okay with it. (laughs) I felt worse about the dinosaurs dying, I have to say. I don't know what that says about me.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: well, some of these people are pretty reprehensible, so I think you can be forgiven. Uh, so, so next up, we have Tim back in the raft with Grant. Uh, last we left them, they were on the river. Um, they had just escaped from the wrecks. Um, they're going down this river, and they come upon the aviary. They hear this, like, screeching inside. They decide to go inside anyway. Meanwhile, we flash to Arnold in the control room. They can't find the wrecks or the kids on the motion sensors, and he mentions that the only place that they could be is on this river. Uh, But he's like, I don't think they would do that because it goes to the aviary, and that'd be really dangerous. Flash over (laughs) to them going into the aviary, aviary, which is (laughs) a really nice uh, thing to set up with the writing there. They go inside, and sure enough, these dactyls are inside, and uh, Grant identifies them as serodactyls. Um, and they start like dive bombing on them and attacking, uh, Lex is grabbed and kind of scratched and it tries to lift her up in the air. Grant actually tackles one out of the air, uh, and a pretty, pretty fun bit of action. Um, and then finally Lex throws her baseball glove and the pterodactyls fight over that and they're able to get back onto the raft and head out of the aviary. So definitely not a scene we get in the movie, uh, at least not this movie, not the first movie.
2: And it was such a cinematic scene as well. Um, like, I really visually saw this scene with them throwing themselves to the ground and the wings overhead. Yeah, and the the use of tension there with having two groups. One just introducing us to the dive-bombing <laughs> habits of these ceratodactyls And then cutting to Grant and the kids. It's just masterful, masterful tension building there. Yeah, it's like dramatic irony, I think, is what you call that technique, right? Sure. When the reader knows more than the people that, that you're watching or reading about. It's just used to such great effect by just chopping up these little scenes. I loved it.
1: Yeah, he does a lot of that where he, he kind of goes between two groups just, like, really quickly, mm-hmm. and he uses each each group to kind of play off the other um, and mm-hmm. start setting up future things, too. Like, it's just it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of POVs very quickly, but... Um, in his hands, it just works really well to, for me. So
2: yeah, I loved a line in this um, where he said that when Grant has tackled the ceratodactyl and it's he's fighting it off, that it's like being in a tent in a windstorm. Mm. And I felt that was like a really visceral line for me because I've you know we've all been in tents when it's been windy and we know how that feels. Yeah, I thought that was just a fantastic line to give you a physical sense of the sensation of these leathery wings. Although, I'll get into the feathers thing later. I, I have strong feelings about the feathers. Okay. <laughs> the lack of feathers on these dinosaurs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I do like that that metaphor is, or comparison has like a step between it and what it's describing. And then, I mean, you have to think about, okay, what did that, what did a tent sound like when I was in a windstorm? And then you think about the flapping of the canvas and then that reminds mm-hmm. you of the flapping of the wings. So there's kind of like a step there, yeah. which makes it like, I don't know, it's a fun little journey. So I'm with you. That, it's really cool.
2: Yeah, it's almost a sense memory, which anytime you can bring a sense memory into your writing, then it like draws the reader in really strongly. But they have to have been camping. So mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not as good as like stubbing your toe or something <laughs> <laughs> that we've all done.
0: When they first enter the aviary, there's a lot of times he ends up talking about smells when he's talking about the the dinosaur specifically. Uh, like yeah. he'll talk about the smell of death coming off the T-Rex, the smell of, you know, like almost like vomit or something coming off of another. The, the, you were kind of talking about like a sense memory. This I guess it's not as much. A, it is a memory because it's something you've smelled before. But like I just feel like like when I'm thinking of a dinosaur, that's usually the last sense that I think of, Is, is sm- especially when reading a story about it, is smell. And then once once I feel like that kind of wall is broken down and he's telling me to think about like a scent, then then it really like makes it that much more visceral for me.
2: I hadn't put that together but you're so right. Yeah, the sense of the like rotting smell coming from their mouths. Yeah, I'd never thought about dinosaurs in that sense before. But yeah, as soon as you it's sometimes one of the first things that the characters describe, you know, they'll hear a door opening and then they'll get that smell of the dinosaur. Mm-hmm. It's really immediate and and brings in a, a great sense of fear that you've just smelled this predator predator approaching. Yeah. I never I hadn't thought about that. But that's it's great use of sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's something we uh, we talk about a lot in like writing workshops and and, and things like that. Um, Whenever you can bring in a scent, especially a really evocative one. Mm -hmm. That's something that people don't get on screen, you know, when they watch a movie. That's something that is kind of unique to books and that it can evoke that which is really tied to memory, which is really tied to a lot of things. And I wonder if he did research into I think it's Komodo dragons. Are famous for having that like really awful, terrible, rotting like saliva smell to them because mm-hmm. it's they like infect their their prey almost with it, um, and so and uh, they seem kind of like modern dinosaurs to me. So I wonder <laughs> if it, you know in his immense amount of research he did for this if if that was something he found. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, Komodo dry. I think they are like somewhat poisonous as well because of that,
0: right? Because it's so much bacteria right. and everything.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I also really liked. Um the kids, one of the lines from the kids in this one where, you know, she's thrown the, is it a glove? She's thrown Mm -hmm. the glove and they've taken it off. And she says, I hope they choke and die. (laughs) Lex says, it's just such a perfect kid line. And I love it that, although I find Lex to be a little overly overly annoying in this book especially in the third act yes um I think the kids are immensely well done and it's great because that's something that Spielberg does so well in all his movies and in Jurassic Park especially is really capture those kids so yeah you guys spoken about the fact that I think uh Crichton originally wrote this from the point of view of a child
3: no I didn't know
2: that Yeah, I'm pretty sure I could be getting mixed up with another book, but I'm pretty sure this was originally written from the point of view of a child and Crichton gave it to people to read and they said, no, I want to, I want to hear this from scientists point of view. I want to hear it from other people's points of view. And so he rewrote it to be this third person multi character narrative. I assume
1: it would be Tim. If I were to think of what character would, you know what I mean? Like, I think it would be him.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm pretty sure that's the case. Yeah.
1: All right, so uh, next up we have Grant is explaining uh, the Natural Kingdom's uh, sex acts to Tim, <laughs> which is kind of a funny scene, um, and they're in the, he's in the middle of doing that when all of a sudden the Rex attacks from the bank, the river bank, and it it follows them along the bank, and I immediately thought of, and, and I don't know if you've ever been on this, there's a there's a river, there's like a Jurassic Park river ride in Orlando, and um, you, w- which one is it? James, I'm drawing a blank.
0: Universal Studios or Islands yep. of Adventure. I'm not sure which of the two, but it's it's at that park in Orlando.
1: Yeah, and this reminded me of so much of that because it's it's the Rex like chasing you along on a on a on a on a, on a raft, and then we, we hear these uh, they hear the sounds, and they it comes come to find out it's diplodocus on the bank, and I think that even happens on that ride if I'm remembering it correctly. Um, so anyway. <laughs> Made me think of that, which I thought was cool. Whenever you see that, like, beyond just another adaptation, we have a ride adaptation. We haven't talked about one of those yet. <laughs> yeah.
2: theme. <laughs> yeah, when when we were going through the contract for uh, This Mortal Coil, my agent and I noted with amusement that theme park rides are now a part of a publishers' contracts. Sure. There you go. That's <laughs> awesome. That's great. <laughs> yeah. We kept those. We kept those. There you go. <laughs> what a terrifying theme park we would have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it would be something just
1: off of that first chapter it would it would be something <laughs> all right so uh meanwhile while this is happening we have malcolm um talking to ellie and they they he he wants her to start prepping for disaster even though things look like they're starting to come back around at this point but malcolm uh is not convinced and he he has this thing where he talks about something he calls thin intelligence oh yeah um which he says is not real intelligence it's this like fake intelligence that a lot of technical people have. Maybe it's very restricted to one thing and and they don't see big pictures. Um, he says scientists are obsessed with whether uh, if they could do something or if they should, which is another thing that makes it into the movie. He says discovery is the rape of the natural world. Um, I found this whole diatribe pretty controversial. Um, it seems very anti-science. Um, he discounts advances and says we actually haven't had very many of them. And he seems very much like he's... Wants like an older time before science um but i don't know because he also under he also will like contradict himself sometimes so this is something we get a lot of him doing later in the book because he does he's just injured throughout the rest of the book and it's mostly just him having these kind of philosophical debates with hammond and whoever's around to hear him yeah i don't know i felt like this part kind of got me angry a little bit like i i think he was oversimplifying a lot of things and and discounting a lot of uh, a lot of good that science has done, and sure, like he, I'm, he, he does have a point about like things need to be done ethically, right? And you need to think about the environment, but I don't know, what, what was your reaction to this?
2: Yeah, I felt the same way. Like I understood where he was coming from. Um, I liked the parallels that he made. Um, between science being about making a name for oneself these days. Um, and he may have made them in some later conversations in the book as well. So science science being about getting the quickest results uh, in, in a very similar way to, say, like, uh, you know, startup capitalism. Um, so not looking as to whether or not you should create a product, but looking at somewhere where you can make a lot of money and doing it in as quick and easy way as possible, no matter what you break or bruise along the way. Um, and so I, I understood those points, but yeah, generally I found it to be anti-science coming from, so I studied math and astrophysics at college. And so I saw a bit of the real pure math side of things because I did a double in those. So I, I hung with the math crowd and I hung with the physics crowd. And there's a lot of overlap there. But the math crowd like to be pretty, uh, there's a lot of ivory tower thinking going on in mathematics, especially in your more like theoretical pure mathematics, like chaos theory. And so I was trying to take Malcolm's little spiel here from that point of view, point of view coming from a math person who looks down on like people who are doing science with their hands, if you know what I mean. But still, I, I, I still couldn't see him going that far and being anti-science. I, I had a bit of a problem with it. I understand his general thought that we've become really laser focused and and maybe the, the way that science is so specialized these days that you maybe not only study physics, but you study optical physics and may, maybe not only study optical physics, but you study a specific compound in the way that light refracts inside it does stop us from stepping back and looking at the broader research that we're doing as a whole, you know, like there's not very much like real distributed science going on. So I understood that criticism, but generally speaking, I felt like he was just having a bit of a hissy fit. Um, and maybe probably, I mean, he knows he's dying at this point. He knows he's not making it off that Island. He he talks a lot about doing calculations. I think this is a, this is a rant from a dying man (laughs) who's, (laughs) <laughs> who hasn't been saved by science and is being killed by science essentially but yeah generally speaking i i wanted to punch him a little <laughs> bit even even though he had a couple of valid points yeah
0: yeah I think that's kind of where I landed on it too he he i mean I wanted to mention that I'm glad that we have somebody who's you know has a, is so much more knowledgeable about this kind of stuff than Luke and I because we've been like theorizing about stuff that we you know out of our ass a little bit for in some of these <laughs> in some of these past episodes. Um, so it's really interesting to hear somebody who has that background talk about it. But I think th- the thing that really stood out to me was that he was like he was saying that we were wasting our time basically, and the, the like the, all these advancements and everything had really only led to us spending more time. Or about the same amount of time doing the same tasks, and then he ultimately started talking about like doing dishes and things like that. And I think he's discounting other types of science. So like like what about medicine? What about all of these things that have extended people's lifespans or you know made people suffering from disease? I, I just feel like he was discounting. He wasn't mentioning any of that, and he was just mentioning the stuff that he wanted to.
2: Yeah, though I think the comment about I think he said that women in the 1930s made spend as much time on housework as they did uh, at the time that the novel is set and while that statistic may be true i don't know i I have my doubts Mm. um but while that yeah while that statistic may be true for some women i think it's a huge uh straw man argument there you know i think it's it's completely fallacious um you know, lives for women have changed dramatically since the 1930s, and that's come about in large part thanks to science. You know, you've had psychology explain that women's brains just aren't that different to men's brains, and they can do jobs and have thoughts just like men. <laughs> um, then you've had birth control, and you've had uh, automation of so many tasks that used to take a lot of time, and healthcare advances. So, yeah, I think he's, he's definitely cherry-picking Statistics, uh, which in itself is a terrible thing for a mathematician to do, <laughs> is to cherry pick your statistics to back up an invalid argument. That's that's a crime.
1: <laughs> Very gen- gender normative, uh, and yeah, I, I, I so on that <laughs> sense, it, it angered me. And then also on yeah, the, the, whether or not it's factual is also bothersome. Yeah, well, we we can revisit that because he talks more about it later. So back on the river, Grant and the kids come around and they see these dilophosaurs who are by the river drinking and hooting and making these owl noises, and Grant says that it's a mating ritual, um, which is further evidence of of his theory about um, the dinos being able to reproduce now. Um, and right then the, the Rex shows up, scares the Dilophosaurs, but they kind of are interested in each other more than, even though the Rex does see them in the in the river, um, but the distraction that the, the T-Rex provides uh, enables them to get away.
2: Yeah, I've, I had one issue with this portion, which was that, you know, Grant was describing how the trees were too thick along the edge of the river for the T-Rex to get through. Mm-hmm. And I found myself just going, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it did. It did play with my disbelief a little bit that the T-Rex couldn't find a way.
1: Yeah, you'd think he could just bull rush his way through any sort of underbrush or, or you know, jump in the water again. She. Or she? She, yeah. Yeah, I can't believe I no. She is. She is a she, and they screw me up because they refer to her as a he by design for some reason, and it's very frustrating. But damn it, it's affected me now too.
2: I might have done it too. I'm like trying to remember if I said he as well. Yeah, I have to correct myself.
1: I'm gonna retroactively cut
0: out every time we said he and just drop in one time. A- she, it'll be like totally different than
1: the rest of what we're talking about. <laughs> <She>. <laughs> really, yeah, <laughs> sounds good to me, man. <laughs> All right, so we've, we, we, we jump over to Gennaro and Muldoon, who are in the Jeep. Um, they're talking to Control, who says that they have located the wrecks and that it's following the river. Arnold says, We, you know, don't hurt him, which <laughs> Muldoon thinks is very foolish. He once says he's always wanted to put a needle in the wrecks um also (laughs) Muldoon at this point is just drinking whiskey which this is a weird turn for this character up until this point I was thinking of him very much like the movie version and then all of a sudden now he starts being kind of reckless and drinking whiskey and 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 talk and I don't know just he's a little bit reckless I guess more in the book than than the, the movie version um so they pull out the launcher and apparently there's these needle projectiles that fire out of this launcher and this is the same launcher that also shoots like explosives at, at some point. So I, I guess that might be true. Like a, a gun that actually does this. I don't know enough about guns to know, but it's interesting that it has multiple um, projectiles that can fire, I guess. Um, they talk about the tranquilizers they're going to use. Um, he talks a lot about it. He says it's five times the dose for an elephant. And he s- says that like temperament can affect whether or not it'll take it down. This is all very interesting. Um, I don't know, if, you know, from firsthand whether or not this is true, but it sounds true to me.
2: I liked it, yeah, I think one of the most important things to do when including science and technical details in a novel is is put in things that sound right, even if it doesn't really matter, <laughs> like if you make up the tranquilizer and you make up things like saying, so he said what do you say? An elephant and a hippopotamus and a rhinoceros? He said you can give them all the same dose, and the elephant will fall asleep, the hippopotamus will slow down, and the rhinoceros will just get mad, I think he said. And that's it just creates this like internal logic which i find i try to do that in my writing with with science and technical details something that a reader can imagine sounds like it makes sense even if they've never had any any encounters with these chemicals before even these animals themselves but when the reader buys into facts like that it they buy into the story and so they get even deeper into the story And so the more little commonplace facts you can add in a story like that, and Crichton does this so beautifully, the more the reader just keeps buying into the story because they're like, yep, I understand that. I understand that. And they just get deeper and deeper into the science and the tech. Yeah, and Crichton just does that brilliantly here. And that's a perfect little example of it is the uh, tranquilizer.
1: Yeah, it's cool how it gives you a detail that's, like, it feels like it's an insider detail, too. Like, yeah. someone who uses it would know this, but maybe the common, you know, populace doesn't know it. So that that's always cool when you, you feel like you're getting some, like, insider detail i don't know
2: yeah it makes you feel like you're part of the inside of the story Mm. so you're you're bonding with the story in a really deep way because you get it you get how the tranquilizer works now
1: well and it also sets up (laughs) i think it's it's kind of a it's setting up that the tranquilizer is not going to work very well on this t-rex yeah (laughs) which is pretty obvious to me in the when they're talking about it (laughs) yeah um, so they also talk about the raptors here a little bit, and they say that they're 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 really smart. And he he says if they were loose, their problems would be way worse. Which is there's so much foreshadowing for the raptors getting loose in this book, um, which which really builds up. You know, the, this final this final bit here when they do. Um, but back to them getting to the rex. They 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 kind of track down the rex, and Muldoon is is really weird. He's like belching and drinking, and he's like he's. I don't know. You're about to face down this T Rex and, and you're being really reckless. Um, he misses his first shot and then he's like, stands his ground as it's charging him, even while Gennaro's like, we gotta get out of here. Um, and then he fires again, and then there's some mystery about whether or not he misses. Um, which we later find out he didn't, but, um, it seems like he does again in in this point. And then they jump in the Jeep and they floor it. And we see the Rex in the rearview mirror, which is a a nice detail that they bring to the movie later.
2: Yeah. The, uh, the scene, the, the line about the Velociraptors really stood out to me because as a reader at that point in the book, you're going, what's the finale going to be? Like we've already met the T-Rex. We've seen it maybe thwarted a few times, but you know, we've seen the T-Rex, I'm not scared of the T-Rex anymore. Um, <laughs> and so what, what's going to be your big, big en- like villain, your enemy in the third act? Um, and so that little line about the Velociraptors just has the reader going, oh, there's so much more to come. Like they instantly know there's a lot more action and dinosaur craziness to come.
1: Because of course they're going to yeah. get out. You know that, right?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right.
1: I wonder if him introducing the drinking was a way to explain Muldoon missing twice or seeming to miss twice. Because I feel like up to this point, I don't know what if I would have bought that this guy misses twice, a giant charging T-Rex. But the drinking and the being a little bit reckless kind of sets him up as being a little bit sloppy, which then I just buy it. So I wonder if that was like his tactic to do that.
2: I didn't think too much about the drinking when I was reading it. I think I just went, oh, character's drinking whiskey yeah but now that you say that it could have been it could have been setting it up for that, and maybe explaining um some of the failings that all of these characters have had in letting the park get to this point um you've got to, you've got to be able to point to something whether it's greed or alcoholism or something like that sure, yeah,
1: all right, so up ahead, uh, they hear the sound of waterfall, and uh you know, oh crap, we're about to go over the edge. uh Grant tries to paddle paddle it away but they're caught in the in the current and they can't stop they at one point they he jams the paddle right on the lip and they look down and they see the rex waiting for them he's gone down below and he's, he's just there waiting for them to fall it seems like and then sure enough they fall off and this is a really i thought like a cool moment like just like a thrilling what's gonna happen moment and so they fall down and uh when they're all kind of recovering uh grant comes up and he sees the rex has lex's backpack and for a moment, it looks like he has her, but come to find out, it's just... I don't know, is it the backpack or the life vest? I can't Flotation
2: remember. Flotation device. Yeah, yeah life, life vest. Yeah, life vest. That's what
1: mm-hmm. it was. Um, so, but he doesn't have her. She's okay. They're able to rescue her. Then uh, they, they find a path that leads behind the waterfall. They go behind the waterfall, and there's a little recess, um, and they find a security door in there, and uh, Grant opens it, and they don't want to go in because it's dark, so he says, okay, wait here, which felt very, I don't know, risky to me. And sure enough, he goes inside and the door closes behind him (laughs) and then locks.
2: I really felt like this whole scene with the waterfall and the ore getting shoved in the water and them going off the edge. I really felt like this was was a series of scenes. And then going in behind the waterfall, this was a series of scenes written by an author who knew this was going to be a film, which Crichton did. And I think Crichton actually knew this was going to be a Spielberg film before he'd finished the novel. So... I think, um, you know, Crichton worked on this novel for eight years and wouldn't tell anybody about it for a long time. And I think Spielberg and Crichton had a conversation because they were already working together at the time. had a conversation where Spielberg was like, tell me what you're working on. Crichton was like, no, I'm not telling anyone. And Spielberg (laughs) bugged him until he said, okay, I'm writing this book. It's about dinosaurs. Told him a bit about the story. And Spielberg was like, it's mine. So, I mean, it'd be a pretty amazing thing to write something knowing the whole time that Spielberg's going to make it into a film. And I I really felt in this scene with the waterfall and going behind the waterfall, this was written by a filmmaker, clearly, um, but written by somebody who knew that this was going to translate onto the screen and would be given justice on the screen and was, and was trying to throw in some really exciting, uh, you know, typical movie jungle scenes like going off the edge of a waterfall
3: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. and it's, it's interesting that this this isn't in the original film I'm, i think we get it something very similar in the third film <laughs> yeah because he probably did write it thinking this is definitely going to be in the movie and then it wasn't <laughs>
2: definitely and then it well yeah it didn't need to be because the waterfall thing's been done so much yeah. yeah i really felt like it was written by a filmmaker yeah and the irony being <laughs> <laughs> it was not it was not in the film
0: yeah, it's interesting to think of Crichton writing most of this novel, or, I mean, any of it. this novel, knowing that it's going to be adapted because Luke and I have talked about how, in past episodes, how cinematics a lot of this stuff feels, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, almost down to the minute details. Like, when Nedry's being attacked, you know, last episode we talked about it, it's almost, it seems shot for shot. Like, you're literally, like, a, Spielberg just translated this onto screen. And, of course, it looks great. It's Spielberg, and, and he, he did his magic, and it's an amazing scene, but it's, like he it see it definitely feels like it was made to be a movie like you were saying,
2: yeah, and Crichton had already spent a good i don't know more than five years thinking that he was going to be a filmmaker that that was what his career was going to be i think he he had a point in his life where he decided he wasn't gonna write novels anymore, he was gonna to be a director, he was gonna be a filmmaker um and so. I think you can really see the effect of that experience of being a director, being a filmmaker, working in TV as well. I, I think you can really see that coming through in, in this novel particularly. Yeah.
1: So inside the, uh, the waterfall secret cave thing, um, Grant uh, encounters the a young velociraptor and he shoots it with a dart when it leaps out. Cause he, he's, he's frightened by it. And then he feels very bad for shooting it with this, with this um, dart, which is interesting. Cause like we've, I feel like with Grant, we see him going between caring about these animals to not really caring about them. Um, So this is a moment where he feels bad about it and he wants it to live. Um, So he also recognizes that this is a male. Um, So then he decides that, you know, this is going to be an important thing for later. Flashback over to Lex and Tim on the other side of this door. And while they're they're waiting, of course, the T-Rex's head like bursts in through this curtain of water and its tongue starts flicking out and, and kind of snaking around them and at one point it, it wraps around Tim and starts drawing him out and then uh, right at the last second it uncoils and releases and the head just kind of falls away as the t-rex collapses
0: i wanted to ask you guys i don't remember if if many of them had this kind of longer tongue that would do stuff like this i don't know does it seem accurate i don't remember
2: i i don't know i really don't know about their tongues no <laughs> it, struck so it felt me like snake like to me yeah it was definitely prehensile yeah it did seemed um it seemed a, a little a little over the top to me
1: almost like a tentacle or something
2: <laughs> yeah this struck me as a scene for the kids um you know you've got a kid fighting off, off a dinosaur tongue i feel like this was something, I imagine if I'm a kid and I'm reading about a kid being trapped by a dinosaur tongue, that's awesome, right? <laughs> that's, I feel like this scene was really written with a, with a kid viewer or reader in mind.
1: I have to mention yeah. uh, the Lost World film as well, because I know there's a scene where they hide from the T-Rex and, behind a waterfall, and I think the uh-huh. tongue comes in and like licks them in the face. So, All, It's funny yeah. to see these yeah. scenes get pulled into those later movies, right?
2: I really remember that head, that nose coming through the waterfall and sniffing, mm-hmm. sniffing really deeply. Yeah, <laughs> Right. Great moment.
1: Great shot. Yeah. So Arnold in the control is happy that the Rex is down because come to find out it took an hour for the Trank to actually set in. And so it was the tranquilizer that eventually kicked in and knocked it out. Um, and then at this moment, they have this thing where they talk about how the auxiliary power is getting low. And then all of a sudden the auxiliary power fails, and they're all surprised because he says it was supposed to be on main power. Um, and then and when that happens, and the and the, the the power fails, the uh, door opens up on its own, and Grant is able to get the kids, um, and they they all go inside. Uh, back in control, we all the computers shut down, and Arnold um, basically goofed up and didn't realize it was on auxiliary power and thought it was on main power the whole time. And yeah, they hear a scream and come to find out the the raptors are loose because the electric fences have been off and they didn't realize it until this moment. I don't know. So yeah, how did this strike you? I mean, like I get the I get that there are human errors that go down, but this seems like a pretty huge error to make.
2: I actually thought this was brilliant. Um, so I've I've worked in programming mm-hmm. um for a big financial institution before, and one of the things that I really picked up is that system design is like an art and things can go terribly wrong when a system is impenetrable or or difficult to understand or has has non-intuitive backups you know why would the power go onto auxiliary and not automatically onto main you know why wouldn't there be some kind of reminder or red light flashing to say you're on auxiliary power this is all system design stuff And it's one of Malcolm's big criticisms of the park. And it's also like one of the themes in the story is that this is a complex world that's being built up. Uh, There's going to be human error. It's unavoidable. And the human error is inherent in the structure of the park, in in the very idea of the park. The human error is there. Um, But it comes through in every system. It comes through in, like, the computer menus that you see and the programming that you see and the electricity supply that you see. Basically, anytime somebody has just built a system without thinking through how humans might actually use it, which I might add happens all the time, Mm. just absolutely all the time in every industry, anytime this happens, it goes wrong. And so I saw this as, like, a little attack on... um, bad user interfaces in things like <laughs> engineering engineering systems. Yeah, I, I, I got quite a lot out of it. And it also allows you to turn the power on at some point in the book, which you had to do because otherwise people would just spend the whole time trying to turn the power on, right? Mm-hmm. It allows you to turn the power on and then turn the lights out again and turn the power off again, which is just brilliant. So I liked it, yeah.
0: It reminded me a lot of uh, something I saw online recently. Somebody posted a meme. And it's, it's the idea that Hammond was like, we spared no expense. And then somebody in, like, an IT department was like, fuck the IT guy, right? And it's literally just, like, all of all of this stuff that he spent his money on. and But he, he wanted to get so automated with the park. He wanted it to be so – I mean, even – it was written in 1990. So it's, like, even at the time, he wanted it to be so advanced, even for today's standards. And sparing no expense is one thing. But, like, you need to have people who are, like, laser-focused. It's not going to take – however many years he took to do it, it's gonna take, you know, ten years, twenty years. And he was talking about how all the bureaucratic red tape you would have to go through if you went through the right channels to do this stuff. But I feel like if he had gone through those channels, the right the right people would have been involved and maybe created the correct systems and the correct backups and
2: Yeah, and 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 mixing cutting edge tech with an inherently dangerous thing like dinosaurs is a terrible idea because Cutting edge tech is essentially unstable, like it's that's its nature, its nature is to be unstable and to have problems that haven't been figured out because it's cutting edge tech. <laughs> everything from the touch screen is is brand new and more or less untested in a broader sense in this book, and so I think that is one of the core problems of the park is that you're mixing untested technology that's only been around for a few years with dinosaurs. Whereas if it was built on steel and guns and, like, physical enclosure designs, then you might not have all of the problems that they have in the book.
1: So Muldoon sends Arnold to the shed, uh, tells Hammond to go to the lodge, and uh, then we see Gennaro decides he's going to go with Muldoon as well. Um, And when they arrive at the shed, they see Arnold surrounded by three raptors. Uh, Gennaro loads the launcher for Muldoon, and Muldoon blasts one of the raptors apart. Um, and then they they load another flash over to woo in the control room he's hearing screaming and he can hear on the radio that it sounds like Muldoon's screaming come to find out Muldoon is now running from a raptor he's separated from Gennaro. Um and then we flash over again to hammond and malcolm who are together and arguing um, malcolm's talking about how he predicted all of this he, he loves to take credit for how he, he's like i saw all this coming um and he scolds Aunt hammond about overreach and uh, how he forgot that things are alive and therefore, you know, are going to act in, un- you know, unpredictable ways. And he uh, also has this thing where he talks about scientists not making enough sacrifices nowadays and how they're standing on the, the shoulders of giants. And that he thinks power comes as a result of discipline earned over time, um, if I'm explaining that right. So basically that you uh, you earn your power by by doing the work and he doesn't think that scientists today are doing that and therefore haven't earned their power
2: yeah i think i was i think i was getting a little mixed up before when i was talking about this this um this speech it kind of blends into the speech that he was making before about science
3: yeah
2: um yeah i think he has a good point in that you know you you can you could start you can start hacking your own genes with a mail order kit today like that's something you can actually do in today's world you can you can buy the syringes you can buy crispr cas9 you can you can hack your own genes in your basement (laughs) um and yeah you don't have to go and earn a genetics degree uh you you can you can make dna in your microwave you can do all of this stuff now because of the advancements that have come before so you haven't learn the discipline and, and put those years into, um, becoming someone who, who should, um, who should be messing around with this stuff. So I get where he's coming from, but also I think it's a myth that power is earned. I think in 95% of cases in which somebody has power, it's inherited in some way. So
3: <laughs> yeah. I
2: think it's, it's yet another, straw man argument is is that is that the term i feel like it's it's an argument that's just not realistic he's saying oh everybody else earns their power nobody <laughs> earns their power <laughs> so that's not the society we live in you're born with it yeah. or maybe one in a hundred will earn their way Over, up to getting gaining power
1: Overgeneralization for sure
2: yeah yeah
1: uh, yeah, I just wanted to get your take on that. I I I I was a little more on board with this than the previous stuff, but but I agree. But yeah, so I don't know. I st- I still like Malcolm in the book. Um, I still find him pretty funny. Um, but he d- for one, he kind of does less, and then two, yeah, we just kind of get a lot of these diatribes, and I don't. I think they're more extreme than the version we get in the film.
2: I think Malcolm's probably my favorite character. I really like Malcolm, even though I go off on go off on him, <laughs> but um. Yeah, I really, I think everything he says has a grain of truth that I hadn't really thought of before. Sure. And I give, I think Crichton did an amazing job of showcasing science and getting people into science and making people love science while giving us a really nuanced view of science. It's it's really, a, it's a gray morality kind of thing. It's like science is gray, uh, is essentially what I got from this book. And, and that's something that I love to see in fiction is... Saying science is great and it's it can give us all these advances and let's get excited about science, but also it has these flaws. Yeah, yeah. So I I really appreciated that nuanced view of science as a philosophy. Yeah.
1: So Arnold is going down the catwalk and a raptor fu- jumps down behind him. Uh, at the same time, Muldoon is wedged in a pipe and and he's kind of trapped now. So you see multiple characters like getting chased by uh, by these raptors. Um, he shoots the leg off of another raptor. And Arnold's backing away from this raptor. And he goes down this um, stair and he gets to the bottom and he says he like taunts it. And a very cinematic thing for me, like you talked about, like this seems like something for, meant for a movie. He turns around and says like, ha ha, you can't go down the stairs or whatever. And then sure enough, it jumps down and lands. And he's like, oh shit. And then, uh, yeah, he gets uh, slammed to the ground and dies from this raptor. Although uh, this is one of the few deaths that isn't described really graphically. Like, I think he just gets pinned. And then he's like, oh, it's the dinosaur. It's like going to kill me. And then cut, cut away.
2: I was really upset because there was a line when he's wedged in this pipe where he says that he can only see out the front of the pipe, he can't see out the back of the pipe, and he hopes the dinosaurs can't get to the back of the pipe and bite him in the ass, essentially. And I was really upset that that would... I thought that was a Chekhov's gun, yeah. and I thought it was going to come back up, and it just didn't, and so I just want to, like, a complaint <laughs> <with> that.
3: <laughs>
1: you wanted to see Muldoon get his ass bit?
2: <laughs> that went nowhere. I feel cheated.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So Gennaro is going to the maintenance building uh, to help. He gets inside and he sees this shoe on the ground, which is not, does not bode well. Um, he hears an animal, animal snarl, looks up, and blood's dripping on him, and the raptor's above him. It jumps and knocks him over, but he notices that its legs hurt. which I, So I guess this is the one that got shot by Muldoon. And when he looks back, it's gone, and he, he thinks he's gotten away, but then all of a sudden he feels this bite on his hand, and he falls over. And we don't know what happens with, with Gennaro here. Um, Malcolm's on the radio talking to Muldoon and Malcolm starts talking about how Western thought and science, and he says, science is a belief system, hundreds of years old, says it's outdated, uh, says that there's a lot of pollution due to this ungovernable science. It's a dream of control that has died in the modern age. uh, And he believes that science won't ever know anything. He calls this the end of the scientific era and because it's incapable of controlling its own power and genetic power being more powerful than the atomic bomb and i think in this moment he's essentially predicting the end of the world coming and that's the end of the fifth iteration so more more philosophy from from malcolm here
2: i really this one this one really was a thinker for me it really did make me think because when you talk about chaos theory and he talked about um like the heisenberg uncertainty principle which basically says that once you get down to the small scale, once you're looking at subatomic particles, they're not in one place at a time, they're in multiple places at a time. So once you get down to the really small scale, you don't say like something is right here, you say it has a probability of being here. Um, so things things don't exist in the, in the sense that we think that we understand them because we live in this big world and, and we're not aware of, of atoms and subatomic particles um and basically saying that you you so the heisenberg uncertainty principle basically says you can you can know some where something is but not how fast it's going or you can know how fast it's going but not where it is essentially which just does kind of destroy some of the basic laws of science which is that you can know (laughs) the state of a thing at a given time um like you can know what it's what its variables are how it exists in different in different um dimensions so he makes a really good point here. If we can't know where something is, how can we know anything at all? Because everything's built up from these subatomic particles. But at the end of the day, we, we know that beyond the subatomic scale, most particles do obey laws. We can know where they are. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit of a, another of a Malcolm stretch. I'm going to mm-hmm. call it. There's the Malcolm <laughs> effect. This is like a Malcolm stretch, I feel like. Um, he's making a stretch, but he does make a valid point that there's something, there's something big that we're missing, I think. And I think any scientist would tell you that today is that we're missing something big. Um, but people are actively spending their lives trying to figure out what that is. And I think when we find it out, it may well uh, exist within the laws of science, within the philosophy of science.
1: Yeah, and, and he, yeah. He, he mentions uh, he doesn't think science will ever know everything. And to me, that seems like a feature. <laughs> that seems like—I mean, I wouldn't—I wouldn't think it would. I—I I, I would think there's always going to be questions to ask, and there's always going to be another thing to discover. Um, and I, it's actually sad to think about a time in which that wouldn't be true. So I don't know that that's a bad it's thing. Like,
2: <laughs> define, define, know, and define everything. <laughs> right. I think once you start defining something, defining once you use the word everything, it's like it's like using the word infinity. Um, I think. I think a chaos mathematician talking about knowing everything, is, is ma- that's a little bit of skewed thinking. You get into a whole different realm of philosophy when you talk about knowing everything. <laughs> yeah.
1: The Malcolm Stretch. I like it.
2: <laughs> the Malcolm Stretch. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so we're going to take a break here and tell you about Audible. Audible is nice enough to give us an affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that, you can get free 30 days and a free credit that you can use to download a book in their collection
0: yeah, they have something like eighty thousand books in their collection. They have anything you can think of,
1: yeah, speaking of that, our guest book this week, this Mortal Coil uh, by Emily Saveda, is on there, and I am already listening to it, which I mentioned earlier in the episode, and it's great, and I'm really excited to finish it because this week we're not reading anything because we're watching we're watching the movie, so I can finally dig into it and uh, I'm gonna recommend that for if you're like Michael Crichton, you can go ahead and get this book. It's on audible, and the the narrator is really good. like I really like her voice, um so yeah. No reason not to do it. Uh, If you want to get that, go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Look up this mortal coil. Get it for free. Sign up for Audible. Best of both worlds.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm going to check it out. So I highly recommend everybody else does as well.
1: All right. So let's get into the sixth iteration here. Uh, Grant is driving a Jeep through a cave with a young raptor in the back. He's bringing back to be be proof that they're mating. Um, They arrive at the garage of the visitor lodge. Um, they put the raptor in a cage and then they go into the lobby expecting to find just people hanging out in there, I guess, but there's destruction everywhere. There's a dead guard. Uh, he, he, uh, Grant is, is telling Lex not to look and they get a radio and Grant reaches Ellie on the radio. Um, she informs them that the, the raptors are loose and that they can open doors. Um, we find out that there's raptors on the roof of where they are and that they're chewing through steel bars above Malcolm's head right now. Um, where he's like resting Uh, they then uh, Ellie has a debate about wanting to provide a distraction so that Grant can go to the shed and get the get the startup going get the uh, generator going or or the power going Um, and then they kind of go around the room and everybody talks about why they can't do it and finally Ellie volunteers and says she's going to go out and be the distraction and uh, the children are going to stay in the cafeteria where Grant thinks they're going to be safe and Tim leads uh, Lex into the kitchen with with goggles to to find some ice cream.
2: This section here ended with a line that, as a writer, just really blew my mind, so um it has the kids going into the the kitchen area um and it ends with the line. I wrote it down. He pushed one door open and it held wide. I just like you end a scene as a writer, you want to end it on a cliffhanger, or you want to end it on a point of tension. You end it on an open door, and it just sends shivers down my spine. I'd never thought about ending a scene on a door being left open. Mm. I just thought that was so Jurassic Park, so quintessentially Jurassic Park, and so brilliant. <laughs> Adding so much tension, the thought of these two little backs retreating away from an open door into a into a kitchen. I've was just brilliant. Um, yeah, I, I took that as a note next next time I'm writing something to think <laughs> about ending a scene on an open door when you know there's a velociraptor outside. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's a great way to build tension, uh, which you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's a, a a clear sign of a of a great thriller. I agree.
2: At this point, every group is under threat. Mm. Is what I kind of sat back and realized I was. I was thinking that we have these different groups of people and everyone is under like an immediate threat for their life. And yet I had no trouble keeping track of them. It never felt like too much tension. It never felt like too much action. It's just a masterful, masterful third act here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I like that you said that because the raptors being over top of Malcolm literally for the rest of the book basically is just constant. Like, you know, no matter what's going on in the back of your mind, the other characters are in jeopardy. Like, I mean, and Malcolm can't move. He can't go anywhere and they're just gnawing through steel and you know, they're going to get in there. Yeah. Great tension.
2: Yeah. Just brilliant. Yeah.
1: So Ellie, uh, goes to the fence and they can't see any Raptors out there, but she decides she's going to start making noise. Uh, Muldoon comes out and he's drunk. Um, (laughs) and he's talking to her and, uh, he he's like telling her you know just to make noise or whatever but it's not working and she realizes that so uh she decides she's gonna open the gate and run out 20 yards to get the the raptors to come (laughs) um i don't know if this is a good idea but props to her for doing something cool and interesting and heroic um and brave and and so i'm glad to see ellie doing something because she feels very underused in this novel for me until this point really um, and I was, I was really happy to see her doing this sort of thing um so sure enough two raptors attack and she runs away from them. gets inside the fence just in time slams it closed and then they all start slamming themselves against the fence in frustration they're trying to jump over it but they can't um and um, she thinks about how she knows there are two raptors on the roof and that there's one still out there
2: i love this ellie scene ellie's great <laughs> um yeah i've ellies in science fiction novels are a thing i have to write a book i have actually my first novel which is not this mortal core my first novel was never published uh starred a a main character called ellie but i'm gonna have to make sure that i publish a book with an ellie it happens to be my sister's name which gives me license to use it (laughs) i feel like but you know we've got we've got ellie in contact i think we've got ellie in jurassic park it's a great name for a uh ass female character
1: well yeah. ellie and the last of us and uh, last of us part two just got announced at e3 uh. of, of course yeah
2: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah i love this ellie scene i really liked her tying up her running shoes saying you know don't tell grant he'll worry that she's the one going out to play bait um yeah i thought it was i thought it was a great scene for her i was really glad to see it
1: so grant gets to the shed and woo's kind of talking him through it um he gets the generator on um but then the radio goes dead so we're worried about what's happened with grant Um, meanwhile we got tim in the kitchen looking for ice cream uh they find this walk-in freezer and then uh all of a sudden lex hears and realizes that there's a you know there's a raptor in the dining room and it comes into the kitchen and uh it sees tim and uh he it's very quick and intelligent And, uh, although it seems to seem Tim, but I guess because it's dark, it doesn't actually like it looks at him is what I should say. And then but it doesn't actually see him. Um, And then it starts eating these steaks. And it finds like a row of them that Tim has laid out um, as a trap, um, because we see Tim being clever. Um, and then, uh, sure enough, it follows these stakes. It, it looks like it's not going to, but it ends up following these stakes into the freezer. And then Tim runs over and shuts the door. And uh, sure, he has to like fight with it um, to get it to actually close. And Lex has to put this pin in the floor. Um, and just the way that like the danger of that moment is is really conveyed was really cool. Um, great scene. But they end up locking it, and then they run out of there.
2: Yeah, and Tim's night vision goggles mm. come through. Yeah, I I really liked. Um, you know, when he's, he's holding the door and he's shouting at Lex to get the pin to lock the door. Um, I really loved that scene when Lex is like, I can't see it. And Tim realizes that she doesn't have the night vision goggles. Um, that was another one of those lines that unexpectedly just brought me deeply into the scene. And I was there and I could, I could feel Lex's frustration trying to find this pin in the dark. I, I thought that was really well done. Having one character able to see and the other blind. Yeah.
0: I agree, because I, cause I, even as the reader, I'd forgotten that she didn't have the goggles and he was wearing the
3: mm-hmm. goggles, so it
1: was super effective in that situation. Yeah. So we flash back over to a scene that I really love. Um, Ellie is running around trying to like distract these um, raptors, but it starts to look like the raptors are actually toying with her instead of the other way around. And um, it, there's this cool moment where the raptors leave the skylight, right at the same time that Wu is like gone up the door to open it up to tell her to come inside and when he does that a raptor gets him from above pounces on him slashes his guts open and eats his intestines while he's still alive so <laughs> uh Wu goes down pretty pretty bad here uh, and and I mean he's a character who has kind of getting his kind of come up in Stu because he's one of the c- creators of this right I
0: thought it was interesting that he had such like I guess his was more just like being like blissfully unaware, like naive was his, was his crime all along. And like, he was brutally killed like a rap by a raptor, like (laughs) a lot of other characters who, you know, were way more, I don't know, evil or had ill intent.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, his thing is, I think, similar to Hammond um, in that he just doesn't, he wasn't thinking about them being thinking animals. Like he was thinking about more of the science, I guess. Right. He's, he's the like proof of what Malcolm is talking about. Or or the, you know, the archetypal thing that he's talking about of these, these scientists that have thin intelligence.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I felt that way. Yeah.
1: So Ellie jumps up in a tree, climbs up it, and I love, there's a really cool thing where, like, she's feeling really exhilarated and, like, has a lot of energy, and we know that that's from adrenaline, but he doesn't really make that clear. Like, he just acts like he just says that she just feels this way. And I thought it was cool because, you know, he could have easily said, like, her adrenaline was pumping. But instead, he's describing this, like, almost euphoric energy that she has. And we know what's causing it. So, yeah, I don't know. Just a, a cool way to write that scene. Um, she's on the roof. She runs over to get down the stairwell to escape. The raptors jump on the roof and she sees that the door's locked. And it's a no shit moment. And and I was like, oh shit, what's she going to do now? She bangs on the door, but nobody's there to like let her in. So she runs back up and she she knows that the pool is a certain distance away from the roof. And she thinks I'm not going to be able to make it, but I might as well try because these, you know, these raptors are going to kill me. So she runs and jumps and is able to clear the distance, lands in the pool. And before the raptors can jump down after her, um harding opens the door that she had just knocked on and and so then all of a sudden we're like oh no now harding's in danger so quickly shifts focus and sure enough he gets slashed um as he's looking for her um, but doesn't get killed he's able to close the door and, and get away but does get injured and this was just really cool like this whole sequence was was super fun to read about
2: yeah i i agree when you said that the description of her adrenaline was so good I think I really remember her jumping onto the gravel of this roof and her face gets scraped on the gravel, I think, and she feels it, she feels the pain, but it, it feels like part of an exciting chase to her. And that was another of those sense memories for me. You know, have you ever been in a situation where you've been, you, you know, your adrenaline has been going and you've hurt yourself, you've scraped a knee, you've done something and you're like, oh yeah, injured myself, but have to keep going. And something ticks over in your mind and the pain doesn't feel the same as it would in another situation where, where you didn't have that adrenaline pounding through you. So that really drew me into Ellie's um, state of mind as she's, as she's getting scraped and bruised up and, and, and still getting up and running. I thought that was a great sense memory.
1: So Tim takes Lex to the control room and there's this ear human ear on the floor (laughs) Um, and Tim gets on the computer and he starts trying to figure out the system. Uh, Lex, the whole time is continuing to be terrible. I wrote down Um, and this is, she's frustrating in this book um, because it it feels like a deliberate choice to make her just very annoying. Um, Like she, Tim's trying to do all this like technical stuff and he keeps mentioning how she's standing there just screaming at him to do it faster and to do it right and to change things. And, um, and just reminds me of her coughing at inopportune opportune times and just constantly being kind of the dangerous thing to have along. And, and I think it's unfortunate. Um, and I really like that Spielberg um, changed that, changed that dynamic up for the for the film. Mm-hmm. I think it makes the kids even like even better. I agree that they're good, but they, they're they better, I think, in the movie, in my opinion. Yeah,
0: I, that was a welcome change in my eyes as well.
2: I wonder if maybe this was a holdover from the book being conceived as from the viewpoint of of a child um, and You know, what's, yeah, what's more relatable to a child than having an annoying younger sibling? I feel like maybe that was that holdover from that kind of point of view. Yeah, it annoyed me. It frustrated me a lot. It it didn't feel that unrealistic. But also, I mean, if you see kids in crisis situations, they're so good and quiet and self-reliant. And, like, kids know what to do in crisis situations. So... I could see Lex acting that way in any other situation, but in a crisis situation where she stepped on somebody's ear, um, I really think Lex would be like doing, I think she would be coming through with what we've seen in a couple of other scenes where she's like, tell me what to do. I think yeah. I think that would be the lex that we would see. Well,
1: and also uh, I gave him props for an earlier iteration where he talked about her being in this drainage pipe, and she was so frightened that she was pronouncing animal wrong, pronouncing aminal. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was such a great insight into this kind of regression that can happen out of fear. But we get almost none of that here. And like she's she sees this ear, and she just goes, "Oh, that's gross." And like I would think mm-hmm. she'd be so traumatized and frightened. Um, I mean, I guess that might be more of a downer to read about but yeah she she just is behaving slightly in a way that I just don't I don't know if I fully buy it I agree with you there so Tim is able to reach Muldoon on the radio and they Muldoon says you're gonna have to figure out the system yourself basically uh so Tim starts doing it he starts going through the security cameras uh he can see all the things happening he can see the raptors up on the roof attacking he can see the ship heading towards the landing which we're reminded that there are raptors on the ship and if it gets to land that's going to be bad Um, And then uh, Tim is working on getting the power on through the system and he's having issues doing it. They hear raptors in the hallway. Um, So they go into the hallway to see, and there are three raptors out there. Sure enough. And then when they go out into the hallway, the door locks behind them, locking them out of control. Um, They have to run and they go into the first door that they can get to, to escape the raptors.
2: I love the inclusion in the text of like these essentially screenshots of the computer menu Mm. um, that you have and i i also felt like this was probably another commentary on ridiculous user interface design <laughs> which was so prevalent in early computers you know it was it was written by you know these programs were in a lot of in a lot of ways written by people who were trying to project protect their job by me- making sure that nobody else could ever use this system mm. and you still see a bit of that today but i mean the 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 menu options were ridiculous it's like Security main links to set grids, DNL links to critical locks, control pass through. You know, it's got all of these ridiculous options that no person could ever get to use. And, and you really see like the, how silly these, these system designs are. And I feel like Crichton was making a comment there. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading into it as somebody who's had to deal with people's terrible menu design <laughs> in the past.
1: No, that's great because that's <laughs> something I would have never picked up on, but I can totally see it. Like, I, I think you're probably right on.
2: Yeah, and he's showing that people can die. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's if 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 systems are designed badly, software systems, people can die. Lives are at stake. Right. Yeah.
1: So Grant is inside the visitor center looking for them. Um, we flash over to Tim, who's in the nursery with a baby with the baby raptor that he befriended earlier. Baby raptor's all worked up, and then um, they left the door open, so the raptor, the big adult raptors, come inside, and Tim throws the baby raptor to the other ones, and they eat it. And I thought this was a, whew, this is a dark scene. Um, and then they kind of run away, and um, Tim runs into Grant and 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 Jannaro, who are there together looking for them. And uh, so Grant tells them to go in another room, and he's gonna make, have a plan, I guess. Um, but yeah, that scene where he throws the baby raptor to the other ones, and they just eat it. whoo, that was brutal.
2: Rest in peace, little baby raptor. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: I was bummed
0: because, like, if I'm in that situation, I wanna i know this isn't the right thing to do, and I know that I would cause some sort of catastrophic disaster. But I would want to befriend this and raise this rat- baby raptor. And of course, they threw it away, and I was just like mauled <laughs> by it. And I was so right? sad. Could have been my little familiar.
2: That's right.
1: <laughs> Why?
2: And it would never have eaten you if you'd raised it. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> you want so you you want to you wanna come it. up
1: with uh, Jurassic yeah. Jurassic World, right? You want to have Blue the Raptor. As your friend, you can ride around on a motorcycle with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Grant is alone in the lab with these with these raptors. Um, or he goes into this hatchery. And when they get in there, uh, he, he finds these syringes of poison. And he starts going to eggs and injecting them. And then he rolls the egg towards them because he knows that they're the kind of predator that would eat eggs, he hopes. They don't seem interested at first, but he does it a few times. And finally, one takes a bite. And sure enough, the poison kicks in and kills it. And so this is really cool, like Grant being very ing- ingenuitive here. Or that's not a word. Uh, <laughs> um, showing a lot of ingenuity here. <laughs> um, and so uh, so then the other two, one comes over and starts feeding on the one that just died, um, which just shows how vicious and brutal these animals are, which I think is, is, is cool to see. And also just how the animal kingdom can be. And then, yeah, the last one uh, is coming after him, and uh, it knocks over all the eggs under the ground. So then, the the last poison egg is kind of lost in the mix. Ellie, he gets Ellie on the radio, and he says, "Talk," and, you know. And he throws the radio, and Ellie Ellie takes a little minute to do it, but then she starts talking, and it distracts the raptor just enough to where he can inject its tail. Um, it turns around and slashes him, but sure enough, the poison kicks in and kills it. Um, what I was wondering is, I thought in the book at least, it was established earlier that um, the dinosaurs can't see you if you you remain still, that all of them have this vision-based movement. So I kept wondering why we didn't see anyone else doing this throughout the rest of the novel.
0: I thought that that's what this was, this scene was going to be him using that, that he had learned earlier in the book to to his advantage. I did like this egg scene though. I thought it was interesting and I totally had forgotten that it was in the book. I don't know, just interesting because he knew, because of his knowledge of raptors and that they were egg thieves and they would eat eggs he used that knowledge even you know his professional knowledge in a, in a way that saved the day so i thought it was cool
2: i love the little and it's another little nod uh you know a little uh clue that he's a uh cinema uh filmmaker is the word i'm thinking of <laughs> that Crichton is a filmmaker and that he's he's injecting this egg with this syringe and the egg glows faintly blue for a moment.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was wondering. I'm like, that doesn't seem very realistic, but okay. It turns into no. a magical egg.
2: Yeah, that's that's a film moment. <laughs> I thought that was great. And I love making things glow blue. I do it a lot in my books as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's cool. Uh, actually, so I guess I misread it because I thought it was something to do with like a black light or something, but I think I was just trying to understand why it would glow because I didn't think that it was the poison causing it. But uh, yeah, it did seem like he was saying that it made it glow blue. So that's a little weird.
2: <laughs> I think it's the universal blue glow of sci-fi. Yeah, that was that was what I got from it.
1: <laughs> I like that. Uh, so Tim is, gets back on the computer and he's trying to activate the main power. He's able to do it. They reset the grid. There's an explosion of p- sparks as the uh, the Raptors that are trying to get through the roof are killed in the last moment before they can get through. He, they put a phone call out to this ship that's almost on land. And uh Tim, for some reason, is the first person on the phone, and sure enough, the captain doesn't believe that he's for real, so he has to give it over to Gennaro, who who does some like lawyer nonsense or he makes up a law or something and scares the guy, and so they finally stop the boat and it seems the crisis has been averted, although we do have another iteration here coming up as
2: we hit seventh iteration yeah, yeah I, I think the uh the end of the movie's a little bit different. it doesn't have quite the same de that that the book does, because this is essentially, essentially the crisis is over at the end of the day, right? Right. At this point in the book, um, like your core team of characters are no longer under threat. Yeah, I think, I think from that point, as a reader, I found my interest from now on in the book waning a little bit, but I was, I was still interested in what followed. Um, but yeah, I also felt like the Tim calling the ship captain was an, another of those child point of view Um, things left over from a story in which maybe Tim would have saved the day a little
1: more. That makes sense. A lot of that, a lot of this stuff makes a lot more sense when viewed through that lens. You're right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tim saves the day. Tim calls the ship captain, gets them to turn it around. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, So, yeah, I mean, thinking about it structurally, I guess that means that, I mean, I'm with you and I think, I think that means that basically this, this whole bit is the final uh conflict right like the the climax of the novel and then this whole seventh iteration is kind of that falling action
2: exactly which
1: is interesting because it is it is like a significant portion um but it does kind of wrap up a lot of stories but um we can talk about it as it comes there's some interesting scenes in here too so seventh iteration uh hammond is glad that they didn't endanger the planet he was worried that the animals were going to get off and, and and destroy the planet Um, but he still is just, I mean, Hammond is just so different. I mean, first off, he's been really quiet recently. Um, but we talked about in previous episodes, way different character in the book. He's, he's like irredeemable to me. He's terrible in the book. Um, super greedy and just, just blind to everything. Malcolm is talking to him and and Malcolm says that you can't endanger the planet he they get all pedantic, he gets all pedantic about the the planet being in danger and he says oh it'll be fine you know it's it was here before us it'll be here after us um and all this stuff which to me was frustrating cuz like i was like clearly people don't mean that you're going to actually destroy the physical rock of the planet when they say planet they're talking about humanity's ability to and you know many other species' ability to survive Um, And sure, yeah, even if we irradiated the entire planet, there'd be a few animals left over. But once again, you're missing the point, (laughs) Malcolm. (laughs) You're frustrating me again.
2: (laughs) On the other hand, though, I actually love this line for exactly that reason. You know, I feel like um, almost all anti-environmentalism sentiment comes from people being like, oh, these people care about the planet. I don't care about the planet. Um, And I wish that we didn't talk about the planet. I wish that we did talk about our ability to survive on the planet, because then there's really no argument for anti-environmentalism if you're talking not about the planet, you know, but about our ability to survive on the planet. So I think that small distinction there, I wish it was made more commonly in society. I wish I wish it was uh, I wish that point could be made in many more forms of media for in anti-environmentalists to, uh, to hear several times and, and understand. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. You know, see, I feel like I was bringing that to this debate because I felt like Malcolm was basically being anti environmentalist in this, in this talk. Like he was giving a lot of the reasons I hear people give and he's talking to Hammond who we hate. So he's kind of the one who's defending, like uh, environmentalism is Hammond and we don't like him anyway so I don't know to me it didn't feel like um, this moment was trying to say that although I do like what you said and I think that's a good message to take out of it I just think you have to kind of bring that to the page like I don't know that it's there
2: I think there's a closing line where somebody says to Malcolm, you know, are you saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't try and, and protect the environment? And Malcolm's like, no, I'm not saying that at all. Right. <laughs> I think, I think he does close it out with one line like yeah, that, but right. he plays, he's, he's such a devil's advocate that, um, that, yeah, I think, I think he, he, he contradicts himself a lot and, and makes arguments that sound like they're coming from the other side. I agree. Yeah.
1: And, you know, the more we talk about these, these, uh, diatribes by him um the more i'm seeing that this is also a man who's near death and is probably feeling pretty pissed off and to me this is all it's almost kind of borderline nihilist like fuck humanity like we screwed ourselves anyway we deserve this like so in that lens i get it like i could see being very just like it's all shit like it deserves to burn down like i can see him feeling like that in this moment so in that sense it makes sense (laughs) yeah so we find out that the crew discovered the three raptors and was and killed them on the boat. So I was a little surprised that didn't go somewhere else, but I guess it's just crisis averted. They killed the raptors, we think. And the others are still on the island waiting for rescue, but there's, um, they're having to figure out who's going to come. And there's like a, a thing with the government trying to figure out if this is a dangerous area. Um, and while they're doing that, Mulden, Muldoon asks Grant, did you still want to go find this raptor nest? And uh, Gennaro w- just wants the military to napalm the entire park. Um, but Grant says, yes, I, I do still want to go. And he slams Gennaro into a wall. He blames him for being complicit in all of this and for shirking his responsibility and what went down. And uh, so Grant and Muldoon and Ellie and Gennaro all head out to go find this raptor nest. And they bring this gas that they find in this, like, secret storage room. Um, and, it's- and it's, like, gas grenades and they and they bring that. They also let loose this raptor that Grant saved, the the male raptor, and in hopes that I think it will lead them to the nest. Yeah, they they go they go to this, and this was this was an odd kind of scene to me because like I I don't know I think I just buy that it, they would do this, but also it feels a little bit like if you just survived, like going and putting yourself in this danger feels pretty silly to me. So I'm glad at least Janero was kind of against it.
0: Yeah, I buy it just enough because I feel like this is the moment for. I mean, we're going to get to it in a second, but this is the moment for Grant to really get the icing on the cake of coming to Jurassic Park and seeing these creatures in like a natural habitat. Like this is what he's been studying forever. And like he talks about how, you know, you're you're not you're only able to draw so many conclusions from a from a fossil.
1: Right.
2: Yeah, I agree. I wasn't. I wasn't that into the. You know, I, I prefer my falling action to just kind of come off a cliff and the story to end. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But yeah, I I agree that it was it was a a good character moment and it was very visual. I could really see the raptor nest. I could really I could really feel. Grant's excitement at seeing it as well. So yeah, I still did enjoy the film, uh, the the this portion of the book. There is a small moment in the film, I think, where they discover a nest at the end. Um, I can't, I haven't, I haven't seen it for at least mm. a year. Yeah. Um,
1: I, yeah, I feel like I remember that too, but I'm not sure. Um, we'll think, we'll be I think watching it's only that. A so
2: a few moments, yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah. look for that.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so we just we've been describing it. Basically, there's this whole thing where Gennaro doesn't want to go down in this hole. Uh, Grant goes first, then Ellie, and then uh, Muldoon threatens Gennaro with this, like, uh, electric prod and gets him to go down there, uh, kind of against his will. They go, all go down, and they're they're hiding behind these um, rocks, and it's, it's this, like, um, previous chamber that was man-made, um, and there's all these eggs, and there's all these juveniles and infants and adult raptors, and they're all behaving very strangely, and they notice that they're... Um, they're behaving in ways that um they're like lining up and 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 kind of forming up into different groups. Um and they're all watching this from behind from behind their protection. Meanwhile, we get Hammond worrying about Malcolm dying, and he decides he asks if it's safe to go out and um and it and he's told it is. How what's the vet's name? It's by the vet.
2: Oh um Do you remember Harding. Harding, yes. Harding a lot
1: of H names. Yeah. <laughs> Harding tells Hammond it's safe to go outside, which I felt like was a little bit dubious because we know there are still plenty of dinosaurs out there, including the T-Rex. Sure enough, he goes out there and he's thinking about he's just like taking a walk to get some fresh air, I think. And um, he's thinking about how they have embryos stored elsewhere and they can rebuild. Um, And then all of a sudden he hears this uh, roar and he gets frightened and he tries to run and he falls and rolls down a hill and he breaks his ankle. And uh, then we flash over to Tim basically pressing buttons and making these dinosaur roars in the park and Hammond hears it and realizes what happens and realizes that it was the kids and and he starts shouting for help. So this is happening at the same moment that we have this uh, nest investigation going down. So once again, he's kind of building some tension here, even though it feels a little, yeah, it's like most of the tension has passed. So he's introducing some new tension here at the end, but um, definitely not as intense as it was, I guess.
0: There's a couple moments uh, of Han- this this whole section here where Hammond is like asking to leave, and then goes out. There's a couple, like, last digs at Hammond where, like, he's a fucking asshole. Like, he's yeah. just, like, he, like, asks permission to go outside because he's scared. And then when the guy says he thinks it's okay, in his head, Hammond is kind of just, like, why did I even ask permission from you? Like, you you work for me. And, like, <laughs> yeah. he's being an asshole. And then he sees one of the workers on the way. And, like, the worker, like, nods at him. And he, like, ignores him oh, and, like, yeah. walks off. And, and, like, you're just, like, okay, well, you des- you deserve to die, man. Like <laughs> Like, this is it for you.
2: And he's listing off everybody who made mistakes as, as if it's like their fault that all of this has happened. He's saying, Oh no, this was woo. Oh no, this was Muldoon, I think. You know, he's he's just Arnold. Yeah. Oh uh, Arnold, yeah, yeah. He's he's just blaming absolutely everybody else. But for himself. This park. Yeah. And he's also angry at Malcolm for being about to die. He's <laughs> saying that's like the last slap in the face, you know, is that this guy's gonna die on me.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, screw uh, fucking Hammond in this book, he's he's terrible.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the raptor nest, um, they count all these uh raptors, there's like 33 babies, 22 juveniles, and multiple adults. And there's, I so it, it was cool kind of seeing this, but I also felt like I couldn't quite picture how they were able to stay undiscovered by the adult raptors that were in the room it it was a little odd it was just kind of like they were hiding on the ledge or something Um, and somehow the all the adults don't notice them even though multiple juveniles seem to notice them i felt kind of convenient i guess because they needed to for this to happen this way Um, but then yeah at the end of this scene um after they've made all these observations all of the dinos run out um together like some like they've heard something and they don't know why um we flash back over to hammond and he's trying to climb the hill he's in pain he's calling for help no one's coming to help him and then all of a sudden the little compies come up and uh he thinks about how they have this slow acting poison in their in their saliva um he throws rocks at it swings a tree branch at it um they don't back away basically and then he falls you know hits his head and tries to climb back up starts getting bit he starts feeling rea- relaxed and peaceful, which we know is um, this this poison. And then the compies swarm around him and start like eating his face. Um, and I immediately just this this scene is given to a different character in the Lost World. Um, and but it's cool. Like I was able to picture it because I'd seen that 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 scene on on screen. But this is a, I mean, it's his come up comeuppance. It's the first dinosaur we met, killing a child uh, while attacking a child, and then killing an infant later. So it, it, it comes full circle, I guess. And he gets, he gets taken out by that same little, 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 uh, little dinosaur.
2: It's an appropriately, uh, ignominious end for, <laughs> for Hammond. Yeah. I liked it.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and they do a good job of making us hate him right up to that point. So we're all, <laughs> I think we're all quite happy when he goes out.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: So Grant follows the raptors out onto the beach and he sees them all standing there, like watching the ocean. And acting as a group, and 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 with the adults and the children spaced around them, and there's a female matriarch at the center with this distinctive stripe. And he thinks about how it's almost a military arrangement, and then he realizes that they are wanting to migrate. He makes this bird comparison, and uh, right then the helicopter arrives. Helicopters arrive to pick them up. They the raptors scatter. Uh, the soldiers pick them up. The Muldoon's already on board. They get on the copter. Tim and Lex are in there as well, and they fly off. And Muldoon tells them about Hammond dying, like in a freak accident, basically. And then he says that Malcolm didn't make it, which I was surprised because I thought Malcolm was going to make it. So I was surprised to hear that. And then Mm -hmm. um, Grant looks back, sees the juvenile Rex roaring, I think, on the beach. And then all of a sudden the explosions start and he just sees the whole island just getting napalmed. Um, and, and then, yeah, that's the end of the seventh iteration. And all we have left is a epilogue, which I'll get through real quick. They're in a hotel in San Jose. Um, the government has been worried about them and doesn't know what to do with them. Uh, Grant's been questioned many times. Uh, it seems like he's with Tim and Lex. Um, and then a, uh, a, a man named Marty Gutierrez comes up and talks to him, who we remember from the beginning is the guy who found the first specimen and took it out of the, like, the dead specimen and sent it to, to the lab he tells grant that the unknown animals that there's unknown animals who have been eating a crop and they've been heading into a jungle and they both kind of say well this you know they both think that it's it's the dinosaurs it's it's raptors and they cuz grant makes the connection that those foods are rich in lysine which we know the dinosaurs need to survive um because they are engineered that way and i guess they they've made it into the jungle now where they're lost in there and so we get, we get the implication that uh you know all is not well in the world <laughs> and that these dinosaurs have escaped and then uh yeah, the G- Gutierrez says, you know, none of us are going anywhere. We're gonna be here for a while, and then the book ends.
2: I love it that the the Velociraptors get away. It's yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm assuming I'm assuming it's the Velociraptors at this point, but Yeah, I assume that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: It's pretty broad. Yeah. I mean, it could be. I mean, I guess we, we aren't given proof, but yeah, I would like to think. But it, it, it can't be that group that was on the island, right? There's no way they could have gotten off because the bombs went off right away.
0: My reaction to it was that the raptors had learned that the ships would come in. So over time, the raptors had been jumping on board the ship and getting away. Uh, and then that time mm-hmm. was just another time that they happened to notice it. So like they had been getting off the island up to that point. That's a good.
1: I like that. I
0: like
2: yeah. Yeah. Ellie's also got a throwaway line where she says that she, no doubt they can swim like alligators or something like that. Right. So,
1: When she's in the pool. The possi-
2: yeah, there's the possibility of of that line being to foreshadow that maybe they can swim, get off the island that way.
0: Yeah. I have a couple of rapid fire things here if you guys want to indulge me. Yeah, let's do it. As So as the helicopter's coming in, there's this super weird moment of full-on sexism. Where, um, where, like the the Costa Rican military guy, like turns to the men and he's like, "Are you in charge?" And they're like, oh, "No, yeah. I'm not in charge." Are you in charge? No, I'm not in charge. And then, like in the book, for whatever reason, Crichton is like, and then he turns away from Ellie and doesn't even ask her. And I'm just like, it was seemed like such a needless moment to to throw that in there. And it just like I don't know. It kind of pissed me off. And I was like, why? Like for what
1: reason?
2: Maybe he wants you to be pissed off on Ellie's behalf. Yeah. There's a chance. Yeah. yeah.
1: That was my take, I, I too. Think... I I had a lot of moments where I felt like Crichton didn't do himself a lot of favors and in, in, in the way mm-hmm. he, you know, wrote his women characters. And his and, and, and so I'm not trying to defend him from this criticism. But I do think in this moment, um, I think he was trying to draw attention to it and saying it's bullshit that this guy assumes that she's not in charge. Um, so I think it, it can be both ways. But I, 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 I get where you're coming from, James, because I think up to this point, we haven't necessarily seen him handle this stuff. Perfectly, so you're forgiven for being like, Oh, here we go again.
0: <laughs> yeah, it just seemed like a weird. I don't know. It just, I was like happy because they're getting off the island, and then it was just like <laughs> a moment of like, What the fuck,
1: dude? <laughs> yeah, moment <laughs> of, Why are you moment doing of sexism in there thrown in there.
0: <laughs> um, my other thing that I wanted to mention mm-hmm. uh, is just basically the I felt. I mean, obviously, as we see the island being napalmed and and taken out, it felt very like it felt like a parallel to me of the asteroid, like making the dinosaurs extinct. And Uh um, it was so it was so like I I was sad, like genuinely like I was like it's like I think it's supposed to be a little bittersweet because you're like, Mm -hmm. okay well, they save the world and the dinosaurs aren't going to get off. But it's like these creatures that I've grown up to love, you know, decimated again.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I hated it. I hated the <laughs> island getting bombed. I thought there had to be had to be a better way.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, that kind of leads me around to, I just wanted to get your take on the general science behind this novel. Uh, a lot of this genetic stuff, how how accurate do you find it to be? And then uh, I know you, you wanted to talk about the dinosaurs and, and how they are in this book um, versus what we think of them as today. Uh, so the floor is yours.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have a lot of problems with the science. I personally don't. I mean, it's it's a bit of a stretch, but, you know, I, I find it difficult to believe that a mosquito bit through the hide of that many dinosaurs. Um, you know, I, I I could really believe in the reconstruction of maybe one or two dinosaurs from fossilized DNA um and DNA is extremely robust there are really old DNA fragments I don't I don't think there's anything from the dinosaurs time though there may be I'm not sure but um yeah I think I think taking fragments of DNA and weaving them into uh, you know building building them up into a full genome through the use of other animals like frog DNA that's not it's it's not that much of a stretch. It's being done right now with passenger pigeons, actually. Um, and that's something that I've included in my book, for instance. Um, so by and large, if you can accept that there's this magical mosquito that has preserved DNA from like 20 plus dinosaurs, um, contains in it, then yeah, sure. Sure. I think the rest of it is all pretty cool. It, it, it assumes like a genius with tons more knowledge of the of uh not the human genome but of of animal genomes than we have today way more than we have today so it's a little ahead of its time in that respect but theoretically speaking i like it um i'm on board (laughs) um the dinosaurs themselves though i mean we know that they had feathers that's the thing we have very clear fossils showing velociraptors with wings um with beautiful, beautiful long feathers. Um, And I just think they would be so much more terrifying, these bird-like creatures with feathers. But I think potentially the fact that they were using frog DNA and reptile DNA to fill in those gaps could potentially account for the lack of feathers on these dinosaurs. Mm. Um, But still, uh, I'm pretty sure it was it was known at the time or at least theorized at the time that they had feathers. Um, and that would have been an interesting point to at least address in the story and say, well, the way that we hacked the DNA means that they didn't come out with feathers. Yeah. I would love to see them in a film with feathers. It would have been great.
1: Yeah. yeah. I would have liked a little line about that too. I, I, I So in my research for the novel, it, it seems that the, um, the feather thing was coming out like that theory was just starting to come out around the time that this came out. So it's possible that it was very cutting edge and maybe Crichton thought maybe I'm too far along in writing this novel to go back and change it now or it's so cutting edge I don't know if I fully buy into it and I want to wait and see how it all pans out because I know it was contentious for a while and it's really like of late that they've settled that like no this is for real what happened Um, and then yeah the amber thing with the mosquitoes I guess in my mind I was thinking they had found multiple mosquitoes and each one had a different dinosaur's DNA in it. Oh. But right. I don't know if that's more believable. <laughs> um because um I was reading too that like even though the theory is interesting and people don't don't know if it'll work, they have actually yet to find one of these. Like it's they've never yeah. found a, a mosquito with dinosaur DNA and it. it's never been found. So the idea that they would have found 15 species worth of dinosaurs is is also kind of a stretch, so
2: I mean, there may be methods of DNA extraction that we haven't come up with yet. Right. I mean, there's plenty of fossils out there in plenty of different materials. So it's highly likely that it's not possible. But there's a good chance that we just haven't come up with some technique yet. We, you know, we hadn't figured out feathers until recently. Right. So, yeah.
1: And I'm with you. It doesn't matter, ultimately. <laughs> like, I don't need mm-hmm. to fully believe that it's 100% real. Like, I it's explained to me in a way that I buy. I'm along for the ride. Like I- I'm happy with it. What about you, James? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I I, I have a, a good amount of suspension of disbelief. Like I, I don't, I don't, I buy into the world. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not looking for everything to be completely accurate. And I think that we can see that Crichton does his due diligence towards a certain amount of of actual genetic knowledge and and like and he knows plenty about dinosaurs. And and I think ultimately, it, it, I, I like it, and, and it doesn't. The, science in it, not necessarily, and I don't have enough knowledge of the actual science to say whether, like you you were saying, that that some of it could or could not be true. Um, But for me, it doesn't bother me. Um, I like it.
2: Yeah, and at the end of the day, whether or not it could or could not be true doesn't matter as so much as whether or not the reader believes that it could or could not be true. And the thing that Crichton really excels at is making us believe that it could be true um and also by filling the world with all these other technical and scientific details that sound true or are true and mixing them all up together i think yeah what really matters is that the reader believes it and i do i believe it completely yeah to the point where i'm willing to like defend the science um (laughs) even though yeah it's it's magic yeah
0: (laughs) i think Um, the only other thing that i wanted to touch on was just the uh that malcolm didn't make it like i i know that in the in the movie uh it's it's obvious that he does make it and so i feel like um going into this i had forgotten that he actually died in the book and um have either of you like read the the sequel i mean i know you know what the lost world is about i haven't Um,
2: i've read it but not for a while okay
0: so i mean i don't think it's too much of a spoiler to tell you that that ian malcolm is in the book who he is. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So I feel yeah. like we should kind of just talk on that and like th- talk about like he definitely died, right? Like what do you what do you guys well, think I guess
1: like what somebody else tells us he dies? So I I assume that means it was like some sort of cover up or something. Is all I can think. Yeah. You
2: don't see the body. Yeah. That's that's the rule, right? Yeah, You're there's not no dead body. until you see the body? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I should have I should have known. That makes sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's just it's a fantastic book. I've thought a lot about what made it really capture the reader as well as it did. I think you know dinosaurs are just an amazing thing to work with. They so little can capture people's imaginations as the idea that a giant race of predators roamed the planet before we did. So dinosaurs in themselves are so exciting, but I think the choice to make it a theme park is really really clever. Yeah. um obviously that's something Crichton had done with great success with Westworld right, right? Mm-hmm. um and we're seeing the resurgence of Westworld right now on tv yeah but you know a theme park without the crowds is what's called a liminal space um it's a space where we have no touchstone for it like we have a strong touchstone for a theme park but not one that's not running currently, not one that's empty. And so it gives us this sense of weirdness. Mm. Um, So the whole novel is infused with this sense of weirdness from this liminal space. And it's something that um, writers try to use a lot, you know. So, like, an empty subway station is another liminal space, for instance. And it's also a place that you only think of in terms of going from A to B. You don't think of in terms of, like, being there and spending time there. So... Setting the entire novel in this liminal space of an empty, um, more or less empty theme park is just a brilliant, brilliant setting choice. It, It makes the setting, I mean, the setting itself, the park itself is as much a character as anybody else in the book, which is just a brilliant decision from Crichton. Yeah, yeah, it's brought to life really well.
1: That's a great explanation for why I think the first movie, so many people love it more than the others. That's something that's mm-hmm. lacking in the other. I mean, we get a little bit of it in like Lost World and, and the third one, uh, whichever that's called, um, Jurassic Park 3, I think, um, where they go to a couple of like kind of leftover places, but nothing like this, where it's it's a yeah. f- basically fully operational park that's empty. You're right. That's yeah. a really fascinating setting and something that lacks. I mean, Jurassic World, I think, is a good example of we see that park full. So we have yeah. that touchstone, like you said. Yeah, that's a great yeah. point.
2: Yeah, no, I I was I was thinking it's kind of like in another mega mega blockbuster um Phantom of the Opera. So we're we're mm. in we're in a theater without the crowds and without a show going on. You know, we're going behind the scenes in this empty theater. Um, it's another of those liminal spaces, a space that we know so well and we can picture so well, the feel of it in our mind. And then you take the people away and it's weird all of a Man, sudden. That's,
1: a, that's such a great, like I'm like going down rabbit holes now in my mind <laughs> um, <laughs> about how like that may be one of the reasons why I love a lot of apocalypse stories because you often uh-huh. get that. You get like, some like Just a shopping mall, but it's empty, yeah, right, and it's yep. run over, and like that kind of stuff is so cool. So, that's a, that's yeah. a great point. I love that, yeah. I
0: love that you were able to articulate that because, based on what Luke was saying, um, with the other movies and, and how they weren't really able to, to kind of capture the lightning in the in a bottle again, uh, as they did with the first film, at least in my opinion, it really is, it has something to do with like when they're on that tour and like the idea of like being on a tour. Um. Mm-hmm. No, none, of the, none of the other movies hit that high for me. Like that. Yeah. Like when they're yeah. on the tour, and then like that. That whole attack
1: and everything that happens in there. Um,
0: and I the music's like,
2: playing, but there's nobody there. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, we'll yeah. have to save some of that for our movie talk, James. <laughs> we got yeah. one more episode <laughs> coming up, which we hope everybody will join us for. Um, if you, if you, if you want, I think I have one final question I'm going to pose to you that, uh, James and I have already answered on previous episodes, so it'll just be you. Um, but before we get to it, um, I'd like to let our listeners know where, where they can find you, uh, if they want to follow you online or find your books or, or, or connect with you in some way.
2: Sure. So I'm Emily Suveda, E-M-I-L-Y-S-U-V-A-D-A, uh, at Twitter, um, I'm also on Instagram, and I'm EmilySuveta.com on the interwebs. And you can find my book, *This Mortal Coil*, uh, at any retailer. Uh, yeah.
1: And the sequel is, is is coming out later this year, right? I was seeing online. Yeah,
2: *This Cruel cool Design* is coming out October 30. Uh, it has an amazing cover. I'm blessed with great covers. Uh, the cover of this they are beautiful. Yeah, the cover of *This Mortal Coil* has got this beautiful red puff on it that you find out very quickly into the book is a person exploding. Yeah. Um, wow. so. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: <laughs> I, yeah. I mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Um, go out and, and, and read that first chapter. And I, you know, I challenge you to not to want to read the rest of that book. So yeah, definitely check that out. Connect with Emily online. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed having her on as much as we did. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, but I will hit you with this one final question. So you get notified in the mail that there is a park opening up. It's called Cretaceous Park. And on the letter, it says, super safe this time. Don't worry about it. We got it all figured out. No problems. They're inviting you to come to the grand opening. They say that they're real dinosaurs, so on and so forth. You look into it. It's legit. It's a real thing. Do you go?
2: yeah i go (laughs) hell yeah i go dinosaurs i just um i just write a will before i go i think i make make sure my affairs are in order (laughs) i don't know if my husband would be down with that (laughs) i love it (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: <laughs> Sounds good. I think I think all three of us are going. Then that's uh that's all all of us said we would. Yeah, we'll see you on the boat over.
2: <laughs> see you there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right, Emily. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we hope we can have you back one day for for another yeah. project. Um, it's it's been it's been a joy. Yeah. Thank you so much, Emily.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Great fun. Yep.
1: So make sure to stick around for the end of the episode. We're actually going to announce our very next project. Um, we are going to be doing the Jurassic Park film episode, but after that. We will be having a new project. We'll announce at the very end here. But we wanted to go ahead and say that we have a Patreon we started, um, mainly just to keep this thing going. Um, if you if you enjoyed this, consider checking out our page, patreon.com forward slash ink to film, and see how you could support us. Uh, it'd be greatly appreciated.
0: This week, we wanted to thank one of our patrons, Kyle B., I mean, he's been a supporter since the very beginning, so we just wanted to shout him out. He's actually in our $10 tier, and we really appreciate it. And to all of our patients, we really appreciate your help.
1: Uh, if you would like to connect with us on social media so you can keep appraised of what we're doing and what we're thinking about as we go through these books and films, um, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Film on all three. Um, You can also send us feedback on this episode or future episodes or anything about that you'd like to see. Uh, Send an email to -to inktofilm at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Another way you can help out the show is rating and review iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you leave a review, it'll help get our show more eyes on it so that we can continue to grow and, and get new listeners. We want to say thank you to Audible. They were nice enough to give us an affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that, you can get 30 free days to their service and one free audiobook in their collection. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. And lastly, thank you so much to Emily Saveda for coming on. It was so much fun. Hopefully we can have you back at some point. Really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's go ahead and announce our next, our next project. We are going to do, drum roll. <laughs> uh, we're going to do American Psycho which is a pretty controversial book and film. Um, So it's going to be dicey, but uh, I've heard good and bad things from different people. I've never read it myself. Uh, Have you ever read it? Never read the book. Yeah, so I'm excited to get into that. That'll be next after, after next week when we do the movie episode, we'll be coming back with American Psycho. So you can look forward to that. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much. We hope to see you again next week. Until then, I'm Luke. And I'm James. See you later.